Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we're going to be talking with one of podcasts' most influential individuals. Eric Newsom started NPR's podcasting efforts in 2005, where he worked for over a decade and helped produce hit shows such as TED Radio Hour and Invisibilia. He left NPR for Audible, where he led Amazon's efforts in the realm of short-form audio and podcasts until 2018. Eric Newsom is currently a consultant and podcast maker with his company, Magnificent Noise, and is the author of the new book, Make Noise, a creator's guide to podcasting and great audio storytelling. On Radio Survivor today, we talked to Eric Newsom about how he began his career in radio at a college station, his advice for community radio stations when it comes to podcasting, and where to begin if you plan to start your own new podcast project to give you the best chance to reach the audience you're seeking. My name is Eric Klein, co-host, co-producer of Radio Survivor. Here's my interview with Eric Newsom. Eric Newsom, you <laughs> wrote a book called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Mm-hmm. Why did you write this book? Who is it for? Uh, I wrote the book because... I felt, you know, there are 2,000 new podcasts a week right now. It's just a dizzying amount of new things coming out, which on one hand is overwhelming to people. How do I find a voice in that space? And then for other people, it's like we're just at the beginning of the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. the, there's 867,000 podcasts available right now, which is roughly the amount number of websites uh, from 1997. So, you know, the internet has found lots of interesting things to do in the last 23 years. It didn't like say, whoa, that's too much stuff. We need to stop. And, and so I think that there's, we're just at the beginning of the beginning with podcasting. And right. as people rush into this space, one of the stats that I learned that convinced me that to write this book was that 40% of podcasts are abandoned within a year. Yeah. And, to me, that seems the, like a low number. To me. Well, you know, who knows what the you know, the number could be different? It does it, uh, that data is a year old. Who knows? But it's um, some of those podcasts were never meant to go long term. We're supposed to just do a couple episodes and be done, or for, for a specific event or history of time. And so that's some percentage of those, which means the rest of them basically were people who tried something and it didn't work out yeah. the way they intended and they stopped. Perhaps they didn't find it as fun as they thought. Perhaps they had expectations about who they were going to reach or money they would make or um, impact they would have. And it just didn't match up and it became less important. And I operate under the theory that of those people who got frustrated and stuck, that some of them didn't need to be frustrated and stuck. Right. They could, um, uh, if they had started off with a better sense of intention, um, they probably would have, I don't want to say it would have solved their problems, but the, 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 the frustration would have been less. Um, and so I think, there are many elements of modern life where a sense of intention benefits us. Yeah. Um, everything from, you know, starting off on a journey, to yoga practice, mindfulness across the board, eating well, all these things. Intention is really the yeah. key. Group, group projects. Group projects, where right, yeah. Three people want to do something together. Yeah, and so I just took those ideas of intention and – um, borrowed a lot from things that were very influential to me uh, and kind of packaged them into, okay, what's the audio version of these things and kind of combine them with things that I have experienced or come to know or mistakes I've made or successes I've had and figured out, okay, this is not a formula for success, but it sure is a formula for avoiding a lot of the self-inflicted wounds yeah. that podcasters do it when they, you know, you can't be a podcaster without a sense of enthusiasm for it, right? You have to have passion for doing this and thinking this is the way you want to connect to the world or express yourself or give voice to others. And um, that passion can sometimes get ahead of some of the these intentions. Right. And so I, I think what the book is trying to do is just keep your intentions caught up with your passion. 
Yeah, and that book, again, is Make Noise, uh, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling by Eric Newsom, my guest today on Radio Survivor. Um, you said podcast producer. I'll include radio producers in there. Yeah, though, now audio that we're producers, the, right. But we're the minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, community radio producers uh, probably start by, off by wanting to be podcasters now, um, especially the youngsters. Uh, one of the things I thought of when reading your book that uh, wasn't mentioned was a a place for people to start where they're allowed to make more low stakes work before they launch the big uh, show that they plan on uh, turning into their career. This is, I'm assuming this is how a lot of podcasters uh, begin the the journey when they when they get in front of microphones for the first time. They plan on uh, uh, one of the things I was thinking on the way over is when I was a kid the. The big thing was uh, writing the great American novel. Like everyone was hoping that someday they could write the great right. American novel. And I feel like we've now, as a culture, switched to the um, to making it with a podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we haven't called it the great American podcast yet, yeah. but it's it does seem to be the new American dream for creative people. There's some element of that. And I think that is probably based that podcasting has such a low barrier to entry that anyone with a computer or a smartphone or an iPad or such device can be podcasting in a matter of minutes if they want to, right? And I think that that um, creates a a lot of excitement because people figure there's a low barrier to entry to this. I don't, there's not a gatekeeper. I don't have to convince anyone to do it. I just, my ideas will no longer be pushed out by gatekeepers or people who are making decisions. I don't have to work my way up. I just do it. Right. Right. There's and no job interview to start podcasting. That's right. That's right. And and I think that that creates – that ease creates a false sense of what it takes to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to talk. It's not easy to produce a podcast. It's not easy. Well, no, it's easy to make a podcast. It's very – very, in fact, it's, it's super easy. But making something that someone else wants to listen to, yeah. it becomes a problem. And that's one of the things in your book I think that you drive home over and over, which resonated with me and uh, my experience talking both with Paul Reese Mandel of Radio Survivor and, and ev- everybody else who, who cares about radios, that you're, um, you spend a lot of energy in your book – Eric Nism, the Make Noise Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Uh, you spend a lot of energy in that book uh, convincing producers to think about their audience. Right. Which I think is also um, obviously really important for people that are making radio as well as podcasts. Like you got to keep your audience always. They're always here. Even if we're alone in a room together, the audience is going to be here soon. Right. And, and, and we keep them in, in our thoughts. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, when people talk about the concept of free expression, they tend to focus on one half of the free expression conversation, which is my right to say what I want. There's actually, if you look at all the foundational things about free expression in this country, the First Amendment, so on and so forth, it is not just about being able to say what you want. It's about being able to hear what you want and having freedom of access to information, not just as a voice, but as a set of ears, Yeah. right? And I think that the great thing about podcasting is, as podcasting is growing and growing, it's starting to look more and more like America. More and more people are feeling comfortable in that space. More and more people feel that they, there are voices there that will intrigue them or excitement, excite them or entertain them or what have you. And so it's become kind of we're kind of in this crazy time which is really amazing and fun of that if you want to have a conversation with people about pens i'm not kidding <laughs> you, know, I mean, you google you will find i better pull up my phone right now and there's a list of podcasts about different kinds of pens japanese pen makers or european pen makers yeah. or so on and so forth um graphic graphic artists and their pens yes you know comic you know, book creators yeah, and their exactly pens. exactly and there's probably a podcast about it i mean there's the last time i played this game with someone like think of something obscure and someone said goat cheese 
And we went and looked at That's not obscure tons. enough. That's not, don't don't no, start with food. No, but the right. thing is, not only are there tons, but then break that down. You know, there's, there's, there's a podcast for fans of goat cheese who want to use it either to consume it or use it in cooking. There are fans for people who are interested in raising goats to make cheese. There are interested people who are interested in, who have been doing it, podcasts really targeted people who do this professionally. I mean, it's like there's a bunch of goat cheese podcasts, right? And it's just like um, when I, I worked for a while for a company called Audible, which is part of the Amazon ecosystem. And at one point, somebody said to me, um, what we really should do is find the best Game of Thrones podcast and convince them to come inside of Audible. And I listened to them. And then I said, there is no such thing as a best Game of Thrones podcast. Like, what do you mean? There's somebody who's got more downloads than anybody else is more popular. I'm like, yeah, but the thing to remember is that there are not, there's not one great Game of Thrones podcast that's meant for everyone. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of Game of Thrones yeah. podcasts targeted at different audiences or from different points of view. And so it really isn't what is the best overall, it's what's best for me. And the reason I mention this is when you're thinking of, Audience, which is just because I grew up in radio and I grew up as a radio programmer, I was kind of conditioned to think about audience and the decision I made and the impact that had on the number of people listening. And so as I kind of segued from being a programmer into being a creator, um, I kept that perspective with me of that if, va- if success to me is reaching a group of people who I want to broaden their minds or introduce them to things they haven't seen before or new ways of thinking and doing or make them laugh, make them cry, make them want to adopt a puppy, want to make them go out and vote, whatever, um, that I need to think from that person's perspective and frame everything so that it achieves my goal. If I want people to be outraged about the condition of homeless people in New York City, for example, um, I need to think about, okay, how am I telling these stories so that the end effect is people are going to hear this and say this is not acceptable, right? And even if you're less advocacy-oriented, um, every, every, every story has a moral to it, and every, um, uh, uh, and, and every piece of journalism ever created has, has uh, a perspective or a message it's trying to send. Sometimes that's simply that actions have consequences. But... When you think from a listener's perspective, you get out of what I want to do and get into, if I'm using a mass media, I should think about what I'm trying to achieve. And uh, sometimes the answer to that is self-expression, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that effort is, or that, that intention is, I want to change people's minds. I want to make somebody laugh. I want to make somebody cry. I want it, whatever that is, yeah. you know, voting, adopting the puppy, whatever. Um, and so you think that is creative inspiration at almost every stage of the process of putting something together. You know, how long should I be talking? Who should be talking? What kind of, what kind of story are we telling? How do we tell it? All that should be framed from the almost reverse right. engineered from the action for the person. And so I think that's why I, an audience-centric approach to creation, I think, is kind of essential. Well, Eric Newsom, you also, uh, part of your experience making radio and podcast is working at NPR when, mm-hmm. when, when NPR uh, had a choice, right, whether or not to um, embrace podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you think that people who uh, are making radio at, like, um, smaller community radio stations, uh, how do you think they should think about podcasting uh, as far as um, – especially as far as the, that audience-first uh, point of view goes? Well, um, so I often tell when I talk to organizations, very small organizations, very large organizations that have outputs on different platforms. It could be a radio station that has FM signals or AM signals and has um, you know, a podcasting unit. It could be a company that has digital news, video, TV stations, radio stations, podcasts, YouTube channels, like all these different things. I give them both the same advice, which is think of the idea first and the story you want to create, and then think about where you want to put it. Like 
the New York Times, which has you know tons of different platforms reaching tens of millions of people, when that reporter is thinking about that story, are they starting off saying, okay, I'm going to make a podcast? No, that's, that's almost a recipe for failure. Or I'm going to do this as a photo uh, essay, or I'm going to do this as a video, or I'm going to do this as something in the paper. I think it's when you have someone who's capable of working on multiple platforms, be it like an FM radio or podcast, for example. Think about what you're trying to do and ask yourself some questions about who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to achieve, and then ask which platform makes that more easy to be possible. There are some times when radio is going to be the answer, and there's some times when podcasting is going to be the answer. I myself feel that there will be FM radio probably for the rest of my lifetime, right? It's not dying away. But what it gets used for has always changed and always will continue to change. And people who insist that radio is one thing are the people who find themselves kind of being marginalized Mm -hmm. in media conversations. But if you understand that you know, radio was one thing in the 1940s and became something radically different in the 1950s when television evolved, then became something very different in the 60s and 70s when FM radio evolved. Music really made sense on the radio. Then became something unfortunate again in the 80s and 90s as consolidation happened. Yeah. And then you're watching, people are still kind of scratching their heads trying to understand radio as an industry now, public radio, community right. radio kind of a little bit of an outlier to that definition. But the one constant in radio is change. Yeah. And that's because radio tends to be a reactive thing to what's going on in the media around it. And so I think that for the rest of our lifetime, like 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 news, traffic, things that are happening in the moment, um, impeachment coverage, um, you know, what's happening on Wall Street, if you care about that? What's yeah. happening in a certain event that's happening about that? A sports game, so on and so forth. Who wants to listen to a podcast of a football game? No one's ever going to listen to that. Right. Right? Who's going to listen to a podcast of a live event that happened earlier in the day? Some people might. Very small number of people. If they had a choice of listening to it live or listening to it as a podcast. Yeah, it depends on your audience. I guess it does. And, you know, you could make the argument that one of the first things that attracted me to podcasting was time shifting. Yeah was uh, the ability to, okay, stations aired fresh air at 3 in the afternoon, but what if it was a podcast you could listen to at any time? Mm-hmm. That was pretty awesome, right? We used to, call, you know, we used to compare it to TiVo, which is early DVR technology and so on and so forth. But then you start to realize that there's things that radio does that podcasting can never do, and there are things that podcasting can do which radio can never do. Mm-hmm. So podcasting can do things like, let's say you um, are the goat cheese maker, Right. If you did a radio about making goat cheese, you'd reach a couple people. But if you created something that that, that community of people who are interested in that can access without worrying about time or worrying about geography, all being in the same signal pattern area, all of a sudden you have a way you can reach a lot of people with the things you care about. And that's where podcasting excels. It can be found all over the world. Uh, You you mentioned – Radio starting in the 1940s, and it, I got excited because uh, one of the things that we've focused on at Radio Survivor in 2019 more, uh, it, it really um, uh, gave me a lot to think about because uh, radio is now 100 years old, and mm-hmm. the, the story of radio in the 20s and the 30s um, feels very familiar to people paying attention to the story of, of uh, these internet mediums mm-hmm. and the, the kind of uh, exciting newness um, the sort of chaotic, uh, uh, like, uh, it's, it's very, um, it's very ascendant in the media culture mm-hmm. and there's a lot of change. I mean, one decade to the next, you couldn't, you couldn't even begin to tell the story of the medium. Right. I mean, you could begin, <laughs> but right. you would never finish. Um, the, the story of radio in the twenties is very much, uh, is really fascinating. Um, well, Eric Newsom. Uh, you're on Radio Survivor today. You you wrote a book, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting. And uh, I was excited reading it to find mention that uh, you have a very long – you started making radio when you were a teenager. Can you tell me about that beginning? Yeah. I um, I grew up loving radio, and I grew up really uh, amazed at what radio was. 
that it could be something to listen to music to. It could be something to learn about what's going on in the world. Um, I even was fascinated by shortwave radio where you could listen in and hear things in other countries, which I thought was just absolutely awesome. And um, so I kind of grew up understanding the power of radio, not really kind of fully understanding it, but understanding that it had power. Where were you? I lived in Canton, Ohio when I grew up. And then I went to Kent State University, which is about an hour away from there, um, very infamous for events that happened there long before I went to school there. Um, and I was, I, I got a shift at the college radio station and was doing my two hour show a week, blowing people's minds with my amazing taste in music. And what time was your, oh, I don't know. It was like, it was like Sunday nights from like eight to 10 or something like that. It was like, you know, some, some, you know, how those things go. And one day I was in the office of the radio station and a guy walked over the public radio station that was housed on Kent State University, uh, literally at that time located next door. Mm -hmm. Like one door went in the student station, the next door went into the public radio station. And somebody from the public radio station came over, just walked in the office and said, I really need someone I can pay to watch tapes roll over Thanksgiving weekend. Uh huh. I'm like, sweet, I'd do that. Like, I think I paid $3.35 yeah. an hour. Because it would be illegal to, to air... The holiday programming without a human body at the controls. I know that. I don't know if it was illegal, but it was unwise. The technology yeah. didn't exist to really do that well, and so they needed someone to play legal IDs at the top of the hour and to switch out the reels when they ran out. They're only seventy-five minutes long. They basically had everything pre-recorded all week, and they just need someone to go bank, 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 back and forth. And I did that, and I didn't mess it up. So I was allowed. They said, "Why don't you come do this every week on Sunday mornings, and we'll give you a bunch of tapes. You play them." And then, so I did that for a long time, and eventually started working part time at the station, and eventually then started working full time in public radio. I've never really done anything else yeah. in my life. Well, can we go back to college radio? Yeah, sure. How how, how quickly did you uh, give up your spot with your? Oh, I kept it for a long show. time. I kept it for a long time just because it was fun. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and, uh, you know, every once in a while someone would call in on the, the, the phone line. I'm like, oh my goodness, someone's actually listening. This is great. So, um, uh, yeah. So a couple of years I did that and then I started working part-time and then full-time and at, at that radio station and then going to several others. And I've never really done anything else except work in radio yeah. ever since I was 19 years old and, um, considerably older than that now. And, so it's just been kind of like it just became a way for me to express myself through helping other people tell stories. And um, so I worked So I worked at the radio station where that was next door where I worked, walked in when I was 19 to get this job rolling tapes um, was, uh, you know, literally um, 10 years later I came back to that station um, and worked there and became – programming chief at that station, the program director at that station, um, when I was 29 mm -hmm. and, um, almost everyone at the station was older than I was. Some of them were twice my age. Um, many of them had worked there when I was an intern at 19 and now I'm the boss. And, uh, that was a, a kind of not an ideal situation for a new boss to be in, right? The youngest person, many people had known you since you were literally a teenager. And this was something that needed to, uh, I needed to figure out how to work in this environment. So I started to think about how I can get people much more talented than me to trust me and do what I ask them and figure things out. And I just figured out a way to like, say, you know, I'm not the smartest person in this room, but I can work harder than any of you. And I will promise you that if we come up with an idea of what we want to do together, I will work harder than you to make sure it happens. Yeah. And the people are like, wait, this guy wants to work to make me more successful. That's great. I'm in. What and kind of what kind of radio was being made at that time at this? And can you name the public radio yeah, station? Yeah, it was WKSU in Kent, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, an NPR News and Classical station at the time. Aired classical during the midday and, and NPR News and entertainment on the drive time and over the weekends and it's kind of like a mixed bag on the weekends and uh i was program director there for a number of years probably six years 
And then I went to NPR and I did a version of the same thing. I right. said, you know, you guys are so – I have no right to do, tell you to do anything, Terry Gross or Car Talk guys, right? Right. But I, um, uh, I will help you and I will work hard for you to achieve the things you think are important, which are the things that I think are important too. Eric Newsom, I, wanna, I still want to make you go back and tell me more about college radio. Because, I mean, one of our one of Radio Survivor's uh, themes over the years, especially because of uh, one of our co-producers, Jennifer Waits. Jennifer has devoted uh, her entire life to to um, being one of College Radio's biggest uh, fans and mm-hmm. boosters. And now um, maybe a, a, what's the right word, um, unofficial historian <laughs> of, of College Radio in the United States. So much so that Jennifer uh, is now a... Um, on the Library of Congress uh, Radio Preservation Task Force, focusing on college radio That's and great. the preservation. So um, I know Jennifer would be very excited to talk to you more about how college <laughs> radio, and what I'm excited about is this notion that I don't know how rare it is now, but um, at this time in the early 80s? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mid-80s, mid to late 80s, yeah. Uh, at at the time that you were doing college radio at Kent State, there was the public radio station directly next door where... Mm-hmm the manager at the time could knock on the door and, and bring in new, new workers, right. give them new opportunities. This is something that uh, I'm still uh, fascinated by, the way that how do, how do young people who are working as volunteers find their way into, into jobs in the thing that they love? And I think that college radio, especially when it has a, uh, a close relationship with public radio, mm-hmm. as as you were lucky enough to have there at Kent State, um, is a really important part of that that path. I, it's kind of like you know I've heard some kind of like thing that people write on an inspirational poster uh, somewhere that uh, luck is actually opportunity and preparation, and I think that that equation actually works in this scenario. So. I was at this WKSR, which was the college radio station. How is WKSR doing? In it's now an online stream. It's yeah. not even WKSR anymore. It's been morphed over the years and, and doesn't even broadcast anymore. Uh, uh, it is just online. Right, and but uh, Jennifer would be very quick to point out that online radio at a college radio station is very much radio, especially yes. if if um, how most people are going to consume it right? yeah and if if the people that are making it are passionate about it and show up on time and do their shifts and people listen to it it's it's radio yeah well i always describe that radio is an experience not a technology right it's a certain type of listening experience and so there are lots of people who describe podcasts even as radio or describe yeah. online streams as radio if it's the the interesting thing is if you go into and like uh, Apple Music or you go into other places and you look at the radio tab, you'll see that most of the organizations in that list are not actually radio stations. They are internet streaming right. uh, organizations out of somebody's basement or an office space or what have you. There's no tower or uh, broadcasting actually happening. Um, it's it's broadcast over you know, a stream, yeah, which is still valid, but but people, you know, consumers make their choices about what they want to call things, and regardless of what we want to call them, they're the ones who get to pick. So, um, going back to the college radio thing, uh, you know, we could do anything we wanted in that show, uh, except something that would be a violation of FCC uh, code or or policy, yeah. Um, and so we could play whatever we want. We could do whatever we want. We could add any element of to what we want. And very early in my college radio years, I made a friend at the radio station. And we would occasionally guest on each other's shows, just kind of be a second voice. And for some reason, we ended up kind of making my show kind of the wacky one where we would like we would pre-record bits and we would create these dumb little things we would pretend we were on location around the world and we would kind of make sound design it so it sounded like it was actually in that place mm-hmm. just all this ridiculous dumb goofy stuff that delighted us and often in you know annoyed people who are listening but the 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 important thing about that is because i was allowed to just play around and figure out how all of this equipment worked and what happens when I do this instead of this. Oh, my goodness. You hear that? We can try that, too. And how do we you know, patch things through to make these things happen? Or, you know, I ended up learning that radio station inside and out 
I knew how every piece of equipment worked. I knew how to make all kinds of crazy things happen. And so as a result, that was kind of my preparation. I like learned how to do all this stuff yeah. just by playing around for the two people who listened to my show, right? Like, um, or however many there were, were yes. many, but I was playing around, entertaining myself and my friend. And, but in the process, I was building a pretty amazing arsenal of production technique, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then when the guy came over to the radio station to say, Who wants to be on the radio? On right. Thanksgiving weekend, he Again. came in asking, was into the office saying, I need someone. He didn't say, I want you to do it. Right. He didn't say, uh, someone tells me you're smart or good. He came in and said, I need someone. And I'm like, I'm that someone. Mm-hmm. I stood up and said, I want to be the one. And what got me in the door, even though it was literally changing tapes, the reason I knew how to cue, in, cue tapes, the reason I knew how to operate the board the reason I knew how to record carts, the reason I knew how to take meter readings, the reason I knew all this is because at the radio station, the college radio station, I said, I just want to learn every nook and cranny here. Yeah. So when I went over to the public radio station, I, A, had that whole basis of knowledge to build off of. And then secondly, I had the sense of curiosity for wanting to know how things work. Mm-hmm. And as long as I didn't take the station off the air, which I actually did a couple times and playing around and poking around with stuff, I figured out everything. Yeah. Right? And that's when I became much more useful to them because – Oh, you know, that Eric kid knows how to do STL readings. And, oh, that Eric kid knows how to make this, you know, set up the microphones in the the larger studio. Yeah. And it's like – and I just – because I just figured it out. There's a theme in your book because uh, the Eric Newsom, you're describing how your curiosity and passion to learn how to make a radio station work Mm -hmm. both at your college radio station at Kent State and then your opportunity to to start working the lowest wage possible at the public radio station next door at Kent State – um, your passion and curiosity for radio at that moment in your young life uh, is something that you advocate for in your book, Make Noise, uh, Creator's Guide to Podcasting, that all podcasters need to have That's true. To, to, be, to, to launch their show. Um, I'd also extend that argument to, to radio hosts, obviously. Um, your audience for this book could be radio hosts, but you don't, um, you don't explicitly talk about them very much. Uh, the... The dinosaurs of radio. Uh, well, the no, passion for radio. Well, I, the, I shouldn't have said that. The, um, no, the, the 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 subtitle is Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great and Audio Great Story. Audio story Doesn't totally. matter when it's on. And I originally, in the first draft of the book, took a much more ecumenical approach mm-hmm. towards podcasting versus radio versus streaming. And my editors said, you know, ninety five percent of the people yeah. who buy this book are going to be interested in podcasting. The so zeitgeist. Just makes, yeah, isn't let, radio. Let's, let's seize that moment. In fact, I think the the original t- subtitle of the book was A Creator's Guide to Great Audio Storytelling. And they said, we want the word podcasting in there. And yeah, I'm of like, course. Okay, we'll figure it out. But there's, you know, the when I was, a couple years ago, I decided I was going to learn to use a manual camera. And I bought a camera and a couple lenses. And then I bought a bunch of books or got them from the library about how to use this thing and how to teach myself how to use it. I didn't really learn very well, um, but I noticed something almost immediately which surprised me, which was the books that I enjoyed the most and learned the most from were actually written in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. before there was even a digital camera to even be an option, let alone the dominant way of taking pho- photographs. And... When the option came up to write this book about podcasting and audio making, I um, decided I want to write a version of that book that was written in the 70s and 80s and is still useful to me 40 years later mm-hmm. um, because it focused on principles yeah. and ideas like composition and light and scene and all these other things that transcend technology and change, right? Again, going back to... What doesn't change. Right. So this right. book could, would have worked as a how to make great radio. It would have and could. If, if the and, internet didn't right, work. Right. And exist. who knows what the next iteration of audio will be. It hopefully uh, will be as useful then. Then, then you can now. go yell at your editors. I told you not to put podcasting on the cover. Uh, we'll, write an, we'll run another yeah. batch of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, we're talking with Eric Newsom here on Radio Survivor, uh, author of the new book, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Uh, Eric Newsom was also... Uh, 
led podcast and original programming uh, efforts at NPR and at Audible in uh, years past, and is currently co-founder of Magnificent Noise, a podcast and creative consulting company. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I thought of when I was reading your book is that um, I really want people who are excited about making podcasts to know that they can go to radio stations to volunteer mm-hmm. um, because if they're if they're lucky enough to have a radio station near their community that accepts volunteer workers, uh, it's 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 so important for people not to have to have that first high stakes interview on their show be their very first interview. And mm-hmm. the more days, weeks, and years you can get behind microphones talking to people, join other people's shows and help them make their shows, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, it's key to learning how to do this well, making radio. And it, it worries me if, uh, if the future is only podcasting and every podcaster hopes that their podcast becomes uh, enormously successful on day one, Mm-hmm. That we're that we're losing opportunities for radio people to to learn the skills to talk to one another. I th- I think it the water flows both ways. Um, I know at NPR there are a number of people who are contributors to NPR's big shows who got their start in podcasting, learned how to cut their mm-hmm. teeth, and then went over to radio and did did great work there, and vice versa too. People who start off in radio can can make not necessarily do, but can make good podcasters. They can figure out how to adapt those skills. And so I, I don't think that there is really kind of like a a right method as long as in the end you're doing the right programming and the right platform uh, for the right audience. Yeah. But you, you, I mean, you say so in the book at one point, um, and I just want to echo that for everybody who dreams of making great podcasts or great radio, that there is a, um, there's a big benefit towards uh, – uh, Trying to make more, more often than trying to make one perfect. Right. Yeah, allow yourself, you know, allow yourself to make um, some great mistakes. You know, if if you are doing things right, when you look back at stuff you did a year or two or five years ago, you will uh, cringe because you're like, oh, that wasn't very good, or that wasn't that, that. I would never do that today. Well, of course, you've grown, you've learned, right? And which is one of the reasons I never listen to things that I've done in the past is because it just makes me crazy. All I can hear is all the things I would have done differently. But um, I think that the important thing is just to be in the situation in which you can grow. And one of the great things about radio stations, especially community stations and those community stations that have some sort of um, tutoring, mentoring, training for um, new participants um, is that you have the benefit not only of the this radio station, but you have this network of people who are willing to help you and you can learn from and be inspired by. And podcasting, even when you're doing it in groups, is often a very solitary experience. And, you know, I, I have a company now where we have eight or nine producers sitting around at any given time and they're all sitting around a table with headphones on and nobody's talking to each other. It's like, it's just a very solitary way of working. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of being in a radio station is it is almost by definition, a collaborative environment, a community of, of not just listeners, but creators. Yeah. And you can be inspired by someone else. You can learn from someone else. You can learn what you don't want to do from somebody else. Yeah. And that, that's how I learned most of what I know is just by watching other people who I thought were great and thinking about, well, why are they great? What makes them great? And you miss that if you're just starting a podcast on your own. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if there's a, if there's something to be advocated for like a future of, um, well, and we have talked about that on radio survivor. One of the very first episodes that, um, really lit up the brains of Paul Reese Mandel and myself when we, 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 we stumbled into, a a radio station in a, a small community in Washington state that realized that they weren't going to raise a tower, that they mm-hmm. were going to be a community podcasting uh, endeavor. I forget how they put it, but right. it, in all, for all extents and purposes, it was a community radio station, but they had no tower. Mm-hmm. And so they did community podcasting, um, you know, it, 
they they had a room in one of the public uh, spaces of that small community, and they and people treated it the way that radio people would see right. uh, as radio, especially supporting each other's work and and caring about each other's podcasts. Mm-hmm. But all of it was focused on focused on this one small island community in Washington State. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, there should be, and I think I think podcasters know that already. They're they're starting to coalesce around uh, mutual uh, mutual caring about each other and and sharing of experiences. So many things in podcasting, from audience building to finding ways to edit your work and get feedback on your work, are, are basically building a community of people who will support you and you support them. And those are the things that work. I mean, in that. In the book, I spend a lot of time talking about very DIY ways to yeah. evangelize your work with others, to take advantage of your friends, to give you feedback and be your truth tellers about how things are going and what you could do to improve. And that all that stuff costs nothing, and all it takes is is friendships and sense of community. Yeah, and effort. You know, it takes it takes work. Right. But yeah, the book you're referencing is Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting. Your name is Eric Newsom. We have uh, a couple more minutes together mm-hmm. here on Radio Survivor. Um, do people ask you what the future is of podcasts? All the time, almost yeah. every day. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Um, uh, and what do you wish they'd asked you instead? <laughs> what do I wish they'd asked me instead? Um One of the things that I, you know, and people ask about the future all the time, and I say, I have no clue. Your guess is as good as mine. The only thing I know is it'll be different. That's the only thing I know for sure is that it will be different. And because, again, the the history of media is it's in it always in its infancy. It's always day one. There's always new opportunities that are coming out, and things change. So that's that's when I talk about the future. That's what I say. It'll be different. Don't worry about how just – in fact, I have a thing in the book where I talk about something I really took away from my Amazon days, which is the whole concept of don't think about what changes. Think about what stays the same Mm -hmm. and that that should guide you through change is kind of basically sticking – you know, what do you – what's important to you? What are your values and how do you apply that to everything? And – uh, which is you know odd. People don't think of Amazon as, as having that kind of a rooted value system, but actually it does have a rooted value system, and um, uh, and sometimes it's it's way too efficient. And yeah. they don't were, take... were they able to put that rooted value system to work as far as making uh, radio and audio stories? Um, it was really hard. Yeah, it was really hard because. Audible, which is the the audio kind of wing of, of Amazon. And the, first, the first paywalled uh, podcast network. That's right, uh, which goes back 20 years, right? Uh, the um, uh, They were used to being a merchandiser of audio products, like yeah. audiobooks and learning courses and some original work. Um, but they didn't have much of a track record of making anything. And they yeah. definitely didn't have a track record of making anything that had had much of an impact. It was world. certainly one of the places, though, where um, before the pod, the word was podcast, right. uh, the company Audible offered time-shifted yeah. radio that was a big, programs. That was one of their big selling points yeah. back then. They've always, they've always had a diversity of content and a diversity of things. You would have had to listen on your laptop, kids, believe or, it or not. Or a custom-made MP3 player. The first MP3 player, commercially uh, released MP3 player, was manufactured by Audible to use with its service. It's now in the Smithsonian. It's, uh, they've, I want one. Yeah. <laughs> they're, I, they're rare. I don't need one, but I want one. <laughs> they're rare, but that used to be how people would do it back then. And um, uh, so the question that I wish more people asked, because it's where I think there are great lessons to be learned, is in not thinking of failure as something that has to be swept under a rug or forgotten or turned away from or it's an embarrassment. Um, and, you know, it's something I've always felt. But again, again, in my Amazon years, that's part of the effect is, you know, we spent money doing this project. It didn't work out. It didn't work out how we wanted. But boy, did we learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And that has value. Right. right. Um, that if you are in a, in a startup environment or, in, or kind of an agile uh, digital media environment, there are different measures for success. Success can be financial outcome. It can be building an audience or engagement with people. And it can be just 
you've made the people there smarter, your coworkers smarter, yeah. so they can take what they learned in this thing that was a quote-unquote failure and apply those lessons to something that will not be a failure. Yeah. And I think the entire podcast endeavor at NPR benefited from the mistakes we were making in other things. And we said, we're never doing that again. And oh, we're never doing that again. Or you know what? We saw person X doing something different than us and we like what happened for them. So let's try to do it for us, the same thing, or try to let's try to tweak it or build on it. Yeah. And so the question I wish people asked more often is what they can learn from when things don't work. Hmm. Yeah, the stakes were so high. I just, I, the thing I love about podcasts is that the stakes aren't so high. Uh-huh. Well, they know, can be. They could be. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I don't like about podcasts mm-hmm. in in the year twenty twenty is uh, that the stakes are now uh, raised. Could uh, be. Yeah. It depends. It depends on what company you work for and how many jobs and who has to move to what town if it all <laughs> right, right. if it all doesn't turn out the way that somebody had planned. Um, I'm trying to apply that uh, wisdom that you were just sharing to to small radio stations to small community radio stations, and I would mm-hmm. say that. I would assume I've never run a small community radio station, uh-huh. but I would assume that the that the um, that the goal of running them is to provide a public service to your community and to make sure that that service was um, useful to the largest number of people. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, you could see how making radio or podcasts at that small community entity could be informed by. Uh, keeping those things in mind and yeah. and trying trying things and then like one of the things i was i was deeply mulling as i read your book uh eric newsom your book about how to make great podcasts uh called make noise and um a lot of it is is uh obviously the people that are going to read it want to want to win at podcasting Mm-hmm. But I do think that one of the things that we at Radio Survivor care about a lot is um, making podcasts for other reasons or making radio for other reasons other than uh, being popular. Mm-hmm. But there's a real tension in my mind still about that because also um, when you make great radio, it is has the potential to be more popular. Mm-hmm. And even uh, great radio with more of a public service element to it um, doesn't have to – you don't have – like there's a risk – that I've seen, especially in my community radio past, that like people would be proud of how unsuccessful their show really was as, as far as maybe raising money from the listeners because mm-hmm. that would be uh, proof that they mattered. Right. And it's sort of taking um, – I don't. there's an expression for uh, using the evidence in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know what the question is with that tension, but well, it's something that that's, uh, I can't stop thinking about. I don't think it's a tension at all. I think that's a false construct. I think that that many people share in. Um, I think that um, when you use words like popular or public service, those are not specific enough. Mm. And I think that what happens is people define that differently. And what I consider to be public service may be very different than what you consider public service, yet they are both very valid definitions of public service. Mm-hmm. And where where I think a lot of arguments happen or a lot of things kind of go wrong is when you have a group of people who are all operating with a different description of public service. Yeah, or free right? speech. Or, or free speech, right, yeah. right, right, exactly. And and popular, too, is incredibly subjective. What What is the measure of success with that? Yeah. You know, uh, if I'm, I guess, go back to our goat cheese example again. If I'm making the goat cheese podcast for, and, and, and it's meant for people who are, Let's say it's just for people who want to make uh, bespoke uh, artisanal goat cheese in the state of Oregon. Um, That's not an audience that's going to be measured in millions. It's probably not an audience that's going to be measured in thousands. Yeah. But if you are passionate about reaching those people to talk about things that people in Oregon who want to make goat cheese care about, and they really do care about it. They're really happy that somebody else cares about it too. Um, then, then that are you popular? Then, right. you know, if, if you have if you if your podcast is being listened to by every uh, artisanal goat cheese maker in the state of Oregon, right. um, that's popular in that group. You know, it all depends on how you define success. Yeah, and if you're doing something that is meant to be heard by 
a smaller group of people and that that podcast has the ability to connect to those people, that's success just as much as creating something like Radiolab or TED Radio Hour, which are measured in the millions of downloads a yeah. month, right? And, you know, to be honest, some of those big things, sometimes they fail at, at doing, at really distinguishing themselves. Even though they get millions of downloads, they kind of get a little lazy, right? And you have um, smaller podcasts they can have a very, very specific definition of success. Yeah. Like there's an example. I was in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago for a book tour stop. And I met two people who work together and are making a podcast that they put out in the world about the office gossip in their office. <laughs> and they're making this podcast for one woman who is out on maternity leave and wants to keep up with the with the with the what's going on in the office? You know who's dating who, who's mad at who, who gotten who's up for promotion, who's their competitor, like all that kind of chit chat, water cooler chit chat. They get together and they make this podcast to catch her up, and they put it out as a podcast, and she listens to it. it it's available to the public, but the public doesn't know it's there. The public doesn't care. I care or wouldn't be able lot. to follow it, follow it, but it's got an audience of one. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And they're it. making it for their friend. Yeah. And their friend loves it and they love making it and they think all think it's really great. And um what's wrong with that? That's the definition of success and they have a 100% success rate. Right. That. <laughs> That's right. Um Eric Newsom, uh it, I would you change how podcasts are measured uh as far as like uh, right now? Uh-huh. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we mostly have the iTunes uh, I said iTunes. Yeah. We have the Apple podcasting charts. Right. Would you, uh, what would you want to measure things? Like if I, I've, I've said this before on, on the radio show. Um, if I could, I would really, it would be so amazing if the way Twitter once upon a time, I don't know if they still give it this to us, the way that you could look at um, regional trending topics, right. not just national or global trending topics, it would be uh, a game changer if we could have, a local Apple Podcasts chart, you know, Los Angeles's chart and New York's chart, and then Seattle and Portland. And well, there every are market. there are uh, country charts which aren't that useful in the United States, but are elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, there is you can break down data by state for some providers, like mm-hmm. Libsyn does that. Um, I think right. Spotify does that. You can too. start digging for the you information. Can, yeah, it's not that difficult to figure out, but you know the the I. I've been fortunate that I've had access to a lot of data points in many of my previous employers. And, and I always say, okay, what is actionable and then what is trivia? Actionable being I'm going to make a change in what I do based off what I see. Mm-hmm. Right? If I see that people are not finishing an episode because it's too long, and I'm, do I make it shorter to make it so that it fits more in for them and they can hear the whole thing in one sitting? Right. Um, that's an action. Right. But if I just want to know that, you know, oh, I'm real big in Arkansas, like, what am I going to do with that? Right. That's just, it's just trivia. That doesn't mean it's not nice to know those things. Right. But, and some, some podcasters would use that to, to set their next uh, tour destination. Right. Right. Well, no, 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 they would. Yeah. They would. And that is, that's action. Right. right. Um, uh, but, you know, if I'm, uh, if I'm doing a podcast and it's at the top of the charts in Chile, so what? Why yeah. does that's that's a nice trivia point? Like, right. hey, the cocktail party say, hey, I'm number two in Chile right now, and I'm big in Japan. Yeah, big in Japan. Like those type of things, they do happen. You can't find that information out, but it's like, so what? What does that really actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're using it for validation, well, there's other ways to get validation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Newsom, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having yeah. me. My thanks again to the guest on today's podcast, Eric Newsom, who wrote the book uh, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. My name is Eric Klein. You've been listening to Radio Survivor, which you can get every week as a podcast uh, wherever you get your shows. You can send us an email if you have any questions or comments, concerns, or uh, suggestions. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor slash support, radiosurvivor.com slash support. And, uh, you know, today on the show, 
Every week on Radio Survivor, uh, I prepare two edits of the show, a radio edit that comes out to 59 minutes and uh, a podcast edit, which can uh, go as long or as short as need be. And um, and so so now you're you're listening to a, an extra bit of commentary from me, uh, the producer of the of today's episode uh, on the podcast edit. I spoke with Eric Newsom uh, at the downtown Portland hotel where he was staying on the book tour that he's going on for this book. And um, we actually spent, I'm going to guesstimate at this time, I'm not looking at my notes, I'm going to guesstimate that we spent about 10 extra minutes uh, in conversation than what you've heard today on the podcast. Um, Mostly it was, uh, there's a whole lot of me (laughs) in the beginning, because I was uh, extremely excited to be talking to Eric Newsom, for too many reasons and uh one of which was i just having such an experienced uh podcast radio producer uh as a guest on the show i sort of um dumped a little bit more information into his lap about what our radio show and podcast is uh having read his book uh cover to cover prior to the interview i was a little bit um overwhelmed by my thinking on how to proceed with a podcast and radio interview with a guest who um, had just, uh, through the reading of his book, you know, he he had been on his book tour, he he wasn't thinking of me, but I had had Eric Newsom's voice in my head um, for over a week reading his book, thinking about how to produce great podcasts, how to how to focus, and um, I shared a lot about how Radio Survivor sort of straddles a lot of. Um, different worlds as a program because it airs both as a podcast. Our podcast audience is obviously one kind of radio lover, and it also airs on the radio, uh, which is a different kind of radio lover. The people that might be able to hear it um, just cruising around in their communities when it airs on these different local stations. And um, a lot of that was on my mind, and I shared it with Eric Newsom and sort of asked him, well, how would you frame our interview today? Uh, That part I cut out in the radio version that you – just heard the radio edit that you just heard which was uh <laughs> aired in our podcast feed um there was also uh, a nice uh conclusion you know we, we had an extra five minutes i asked eric if he had extra time for me and we talked a little bit more at the end of the show so if you're interested in hearing the the full uh unedited version it's available to uh patreon supporters of radio survivor that's the big pitch and you can you can subscribe for a dollar a month Listen to that uh, special Patreon content and then cancel your Patreon support after $1. Or or you can keep supporting Radio Survivor because we do this work every week uh, for free for our listeners. And we currently have a lot of wonderful support from people who who care about what we do and want to keep it strong, keep it going. I want to let you know that I'm just extremely proud of the work that we've been doing on Radio Survivor, not just for all 230-something-odd episodes, but really, like, uh, next week and the week before, I want to brag a little bit. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking with an expert on the sound of radio at historically black colleges and universities at HBCUs, and um, that's that's it. I want you to know that that's going to happen because... um, uh, it, it <laughs> I'm looking forward to the interview. Jennifer Waits has put together this interview with our guest, uh, with with our future guest. We have yet to record with Jocelyn Robinson, who was awarded a National Recording Preservation Foundation grant to survey the archival holdings of historically black colleges and university radio stations. And um, what what else do you need to know, folks? If that doesn't if that doesn't float your boat, I don't know why you're still listening to Radio Survivor. And uh, speaking of which, I just wanted to let you know that if you hadn't checked out last week's episode, which was episode number uh, two hundred and thirty two hundred thirty, um, it's a very special episode for Radio Survivor. We were um, if you if you haven't heard the news from us from our lips yet, we were very recently uh, approached by email, by folks at the Library of Congress, and Radio Survivor was chosen to be a part of their, um, what essentially I think they're going to call, or we're going to call a pilot project, to, to begin the process of archiving the sounds of podcasts uh, at the Library of Congress. And so we talked for over an hour with the a person who works at the Library of Congress who is in charge of beginning this project. 
beginning to build a system at the Library of Congress to preserve the sounds of podcasts to get them into the system and to uh, catalog them so that they're going to be around in the future, uh, which is um, which blows my mind as a radio producer and podcast lover. So check that out, episode number 230 if you haven't already. And stay tuned for episode number 232 where we talk about the, the preserving the sounds of historically black colleges and universities with our guest next week. Uh, my name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Paul Reese Mendel, who will be back soon, and Jennifer Waits, and Matthew Lassar, we, all of us at Ray Survivor, want to thank you so much for, for listening to our show and for supporting the work. Mm-hmm.